Money Sense is brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group, four-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com and listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, the founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. And we're located in Pewaukee, just north of I-94 between Highway 164 and Highway F in Ridgeview Corporate Park. And that's new. We're in our brand new building. And I would like to offer everybody the opportunity to come in, say hi. We're on 40 plus acres. We've got this beautiful, gorgeous area and a wonderful building that we'd love to have you stop in. We're also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank building across from Winkies. And it's really nice to know that we can service our clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. So if you'd like to put a voice with a face, go to ellenbecker.com for more details. Today is a great show. We are going to be talking about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. My guest today is Michael Conley. He's got 40 years plus in healthcare. He's a former CEO of Mercy Health. He has been working in this area of healthcare for the most part of his life. And as I was looking at his information, it brought up so many feelings and emotions that I had around my own father. My dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and we sort of rallied around him. And this was very new for us. We never had an experience in healthcare like that. We listened to the doctors, and my father was given a time frame of six months that he would have to live. And he actually died almost exactly six months. But that period of time between the diagnosis and my father actually passing away was such a journey for us and a journey of working with hospitals and working with a patient who had an eminent diagnosis. And they did everything to keep him alive. And during that time period, certainly it was emotionally expensive. It was financially expensive. But the impact on my father and his last days of, of his own life were so tragically taken away because he was sick most of that time. And when I looked at the book that uh, Michael has written, I was just taken and I thought, I wish that I had had the information to know what we could have had as options and other things we could have done. Michael's book, The Journey's End, is fantastic. He shares five ideas that you should really know about in terms of end-of-life care and that are really important. So welcome to the show, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Karen. You know, Michael, it's not the topic that everybody wants to talk about because as a financial advisor, and we always start first with our estate planning. And of course, you know, you've got your trusts and your wills. And then we talk about powers of attorney for healthcare. We talk about powers of attorney for finance. And when we talk about the powers of attorney for healthcare, it doesn't really touch on these issues. It doesn't, it gets you to the very black and white part of it, how do people talk about these conversations of what happens when something happens and to really understand what happens when you end up in the hospital and you no longer have a voice? 
Well, um, hopefully you have articulated what you want before that moment. And, and that's a, uh, an important issue. One of the things that I suggest to think about is that when you have a new child in a pregnancy, you get very prepared. I mean, you read about raising a kid, you change your house, you uh, make lifestyle changes, you do all kinds of things to prepare for a new child. And I have news for you, but there are a lot of things you need to do to prepare to die. And with dignity. With dignity. With dignity. <laughs> with dignity. And that it really is um, an educational process. It's uh, uh, one author or uh, the Lancet Journal calls it death literacy. And so I, I think that, uh, first of all, you need to understand how doctors and healthcare operate. And you need to understand that because of that, they're not likely to give you much information about a natural death, because that isn't how they think. For them, their job is to uh, prevent you from dying. But when you're old and frail, preventing yourself from death may not be a good idea. <laughs> That's why I always say the lowest utilizers of healthcare at end of life are physicians, because physicians know a lot of these things don't work. And, and so, but we all panic. We get to this, we're going to lose mom. And if we're going to lose mom, we say, do everything. And, or even maybe yourself, you, you're told you're, 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 you might die or you have a terminal diagnosis and you say, we'll do everything. And in my opinion, uh, that is perhaps the worst thing you can do because uh, it, it sort of traps the healthcare system into giving you everything. There's no recognition of that it have very nominal chance of working. You've already said you want everything. And so you'll get it. And the problem is that we keep inventing more and more things <laughs> to uh, keep us alive. Literally every one of our body parts can be maintained by a machine your heart, your lungs, uh, your kidneys, all of these things can be run by machines, but you're dying. And if you go, and so being on those machines and existing may not be living. So another thing to think about is what does it mean to be alive to you? You know, is it, does it mean you, you want to have uh, the ability to relate to uh, your family? Uh, a common problem in this space is Alzheimer's. You know, you could live a long time with Alzheimer's um, and you may not know your family for a decade and still be living. But while you have all those situations, you're going to get all healthcare has to offer unless you say otherwise. And, and so it's, it's understanding some of those dynamics. Um, and, and doctors feel that if they don't save you, you're failing. That's their mindset. And so you have to just be aware that that's how they think. And you're the only one who can judge when you're sick enough to die, that, you know, that you've had enough. But, you know, no one wants to bring that up. And well, you know, Michael, when I... When I sit down with a client and we go through the powers of attorney for health care and, you know, it says I don't want to be on life support systems and people generally will 
say, no, I don't want to do that. And they check that box and they sign it. And then I'll say, you know, it's really important that you talk to your children about this. And I gave, you know, my own personal story. When I did mine, I named my youngest sister. I named, picked out who could do the powers of attorney for health care and finances. Ah, Cindy's the right one for the power of attorney for health care. And I told her and she came back and she said, I'm not going to pull your plug. Don't put me on that. I don't want to do that. And most times, so often, parents will say to me, my kids don't want to talk about it. So my kids, that, they don't, I don't want to talk about it. And, and that's why you need to write down or do your own video on your phone of what you want. One of the things my book does is it walks you through like um, you, I don't want to die in ICU. I can't fathom anybody that would want to die in ICU. If you're dying, in my opinion, you shouldn't be in ICU. <laughs> but half the people in ICU are dying because nobody wants to make a decision. And all those people probably have checked, I don't want extraordinary care, but the health system's not gonna view that as extraordinary care. And so what I do in the book is I sort of walk through treatments that you need to be precise about. You know, I don't want a feeding tube. I don't wanna go on a lung machine. If I have a terminal illness, I don't wanna be hospitalized. I mean, there are very, and so when you get specific, and that's what the book helps you do, when you get specific, then it's pretty clear for your children and or the health system what you want. But the way directives are generally written, uh, they're not helpful to the caregivers and they're not helpful to the power of attorney because they don't really convey what you really want. And when? And when? and when, because so often, like you said, people get into the, there's a terrible accident, something happens, they're in ICU, they do every heroic measure to get them still breathing. And then my understanding is the doctors say, we'll get him to a certain point so we can move him to a nursing home or we can move that person somewhere. And then they just keep him alive and nothing ever really gets done to end that life, they just keep them alive until they die. And I mean, the person that's laying there hasn't got any voice any longer. And that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> uh, because that is exactly what happens over and over and over throughout the country. And everybody that's taking care of that person thinks they're doing the right thing. Um, but it's because I have a whole chapter on the fear of death. There's a big psychology around the fear of death. And that's why we don't want to talk about this. We, it, it is considered the greatest fear a human being has. And so children don't want to talk about it. The parents don't want to talk about it. The doctors don't want to talk about it. And, and so um, this uh, fear is something that changes a bit. It doesn't go away, but it changes when you become more educated about what it really means. When you have thought through, what does it mean to be alive? When you are thinking about what, this fear comes from wanting to have your legacy. And if you feel you've achieved your legacy, then you're not as resistant to die. 
But if you don't feel you've achieved your legacy, then there's, but you have to be realistic about, is anything going to happen in these last couple of years? Well, you know, when my dad was sick and he made the decision, do everything, just what you said, do everything. And then we saw him deteriorating when he got in the chemotherapy and he got cold sores and he couldn't talk and then he couldn't eat. And then it was one thing after another that we lost, we lost my dad so much earlier than when he actually passed away. And we've talked about that as kids, but each, we have four children. Each one of us felt a little bit differently about what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And it was a little bit late to start having the conversations then. So that is an excellent illustration. You can talk to any doctor and they will tell you the most common experience they have is family members disagreeing on the care of their parent. And there's always one that wants everything. <laughs> and there's always one that says, this is enough. Yeah. And, and when you have that, malpractice falls into this game. The doctors are going to go with do everything because they're afraid that if they didn't do everything, then they could be sued. Let's take a quick break. We're, we're at the end of this. And when we come back, can you give us a little bit of insight as to how children, how parents, adult children and parents can open up that line of communication to really talk about um, even how to talk to the doctors, because one of the things that we found out, you know, there's always one that steps up to the plate and says, OK, I'll handle all the medical stuff <laughs> and try to communicate to each other, for one thing. But they did not take time with us. It was like, here are the things we're going to do. And then we would say, well, what are our expectations? Well, we don't know. Everybody's different. It could go this way. It could go that way. But we'll keep trying. And it was so frustrating because we really didn't know what was going on other than my father was getting all this stuff. And with that, we will be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. I am the founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. Today, my guest is author Michael Doreen Connolly. He has written a great book, The Journey's End, and he shares five end-of-life um, thoughts and care and things that you need to know as you're looking at some of these terminal illnesses as you are happy and well today. And one of the things that I know on a dime, you cannot be happy and well tomorrow and find yourself in an ICU or find yourself in a situation where decisions have to be made. And if I can't, from this show, if I can't encourage you enough from my own personal experience, have these conversations earlier. I know you're feeling great. When I said to Julie, you know, owning this business, I have a lot of people that work for me and a lot of clients, and we really had to talk about what is that plan if I die? And Julie was like, oh, mom, we don't have to talk about that yet. There's plenty of time. I've gone something could happen tomorrow. We need to, we need to know. And it is hard to talk about. And so, Michael, what can you help my listeners think about, first of all, in talking with their family, their children, and the people who are going to be rallying around them? But then how does the family or the individual talk to the doctor and get answers to the things that they really want to know? 
So I, I would say that the, the first thing that uh, people don't fully appreciate is that healthcare's treatments effectiveness decline in effectiveness as we become more frail. And so something, all of the treatments that are developed were developed on younger people. They don't <laughs> test uh, new, new procedures and new drugs on, young, on dying old people. And so how they react when you're real old and very frail versus uh, how they react when you're young and more vibrant is different. We still use them. We still do all these things, but they, they tend to um, cause complications. And then one thing goes from the next. And, and the scenario you talked about in the beginning where you went to ICU and then you went to the nursing home and then you never went anywhere else again. And, and that's, it happens over, and even in a nursing home, there's like a rebound system where you keep going from the nursing home back to the hospital and then back to the nursing home and then back to the hospital. And so if you understand this stuff doesn't work, that's sort of the first uh, uh, thing to start appreciating. We can do things, but they really, they will fix one thing and cause another thing. This is almost what it comes down to. Um, so one person that would be a really helpful person to get would be a palliative care doctor or a palliative care nurse. Now, we created those specialties uh, starting in 2006. And unfortunately, they barely exist in the United States. So we have there. And, and so if you look it up, there are lots of uh, materials on palliative care. It's just hard to get a palliative care doctor. But if you have any terminal illness or you're facing uh, you know, any serious treatments and you're old and frail, you need to first consult with a palliative care doctor. And their job is to look at things holistic. You know, They aren't gonna look at your heart or your kidneys or your uh, cancer. They're gonna look at you and your family and, and bring everybody together and have a conversation. They'll have a team of people. That's the purpose of palliative care. And, and maintaining quality of life and, and, and your own um, feeling of respect. And, you know, I look at that when I remember thinking my father, he was, he'd lost all that. So, so most people have a misunderstanding of hospice. Hospice is associated with giving up hope. And there couldn't be a, a, a poorer understanding of what hospice is. In fact, ironically, people live longer in hospice than they do getting active treatment for precisely what you said. Instead of you know, getting all the treatments for every possible complication, they're left alone. And they just are, are the, their pain is managed and they have quality time. That's how my sister died with COPD. So, I mean, COPD is a good example of, that's chronic pulmonary disease um, where you stop gradually uh, being able to breathe. And its phases are kind of predictable, but nobody, the only thing they recommended for my sister was a lung transplant, which wouldn't have worked. But that nobody said the word hospice. And so, because I knew about stuff, and then, and she wasn't ready to hear the word hospice. So I used the word palliative care. 
I honestly think there, there's technical differences beyond the, the, our call today. But palliative care is the treatment model and hospice is the insurance model, is a simple way to think about it. But hospice is a wonderful way to consciously choose early. So Jimmy Carter, our president, has uh, now been alive over three months in hospice. And that's a great example of he knew that there wasn't anything else they were going to do for him. So he stops getting active treatment and he goes into hospice. And he's living and he's probably a lot happier than if he was bouncing back in the health system. So those are, so, you know, it is being aware of hospice and being aware of palliative care, realizing that those are not going to be proposed to you by your doctors, because the doctors also feel it's giving up hope. And they don't want to convey to you that they're giving up hope. They want to save you. And so their psychology is not very receptive to this. And there's a reason for that. I mean, they're, you know, it's good intention, but on the other hand, uh, it's caused a lot of, uh, nobody's in charge of talking to you about end of life in the health system, nobody. So one of my recommendations in the book is to make that a physician's responsibility and give it a home, give it a place that has responsibility because it isn't a one-time conversation. It isn't a checking the box on a form because as you said, people's health changes, circumstances change. And you need to be able to, uh, when you're in your 70s and 80s, need to be able to have regular conversations about these issues. And you need to have them with someone and adjust your advanced directives living will according to what you want for yourself. I think it's so important, too, to have those family meetings. And when you get together to, you know, it's hard to bring that up. It's, I mean, most people, when I talk to them, their children don't know if they want to be buried or cremated. I mean, there's no conversations around it. And so taking that time to, you know, one of the things you could do is you could go to ellenbecker.com and go down to Money Sense and you can hit on this show and you can forward this to your children and say, I listened to this on the radio and I really want to have a conversation around this because I don't want to put you in a position to have to make decisions that you don't want to make and have to do it without knowledge of what I want. And I want to give you permission to do these things on my behalf because I did not know, I'd never thought about having these conversations and they're so difficult, but can you imagine your children trying to make these decisions for you with no clarity at all what's important to you? And so on my own self, I want to have dignity. Uh, I want to feel that I'm still bringing value. And I mean, being able to talk and converse and make decisions. I don't want to be there kind of in a vegetative state where I know I'm not going to come back from this. I mean, it's obvious, and yet everybody's keeping me alive. I mean, that doesn't seem in alignment with who I am and who I've always been. So um, there is a, a game, a card game, that is called the Go Wish game. And it's a deck of cards. And it has a series of uh, sort of statements, questions. 
So one, I'll just read some of them to you. Not being a burden to my family, to be able to help others, to uh, be not connected to machines. So these cards, uh, and there's like 50 of them, and you, you pick the top 10. Wh which of these cards are the 10 most important things to you? And then you have a conversation about what these things mean to you with your kids. So it gives structure and it gives, uh, it, it disarms people a little bit to have that sort of a format uh, to have that conversation and is a helpful resource um, for families that don't wanna feel that they're not comfortable having the conversation. It's an icebreaker. Well, that is, um, I guess, let's take a break. And when we come back, help us to understand a little bit more how we can work with a physician. And once your family knows, my dad doesn't want this, or let's say he's had a stroke and he can't act on his own behalf. And the kids say, but my dad never wanted that. And we're not going to do that. And the doctor comes back and says, well, but I, I think that this is our next step. How does a family interact with the physicians? And I just want to tell you a little bit about our author today. Um, Michael served as the CEO of Mercy Health, which is one of the largest health systems. He also previously served as an executive with the Daughters of Charity National Health System, which is now, as we know, Ascension Health. And he was did work in, in Sweden and in Spain and the United Kingdom and Journey with their healthcare systems. He's published numerous articles in very various healthcare journals, and he's served as a chair of prominent organizations, including Catholic Charities. And so we're talking to someone here who has really walked these corridors, walked these hallways with um, healthcare and has given us some really great insight. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how to interact with physicians and how to be able to take a stand on what you think is most important. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. I'm the founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. And I mentioned a little bit earlier that this is an important conversation and it's really near and dear to my heart as I am rounding that bend of being 74 this July. You know, I, I know I'm you not going to You look way too young. <laughs> I'm not going to be around that much longer. And, you know, I, I've worked my whole life and I've gotten dressed and gone to work and I felt very much in control of my life and making good decisions. I can't imagine what it might be like if I would find myself in a position where I no longer am dressed and I'm not competent or capable of making decisions for myself and I'm laying there and I'm picturing that I'm alive, my eyes are open and I'm looking at you, but I really can't communicate to you what I want. And so people are making decisions for me without really understanding what I want and the impact that I want to make in my life. And I think if everybody takes this radio show and sends it to the people they love and say, here's a conversation starter, and I think this is an important topic, and it's going to help you to deal with my caregivers and help you to create the end of my life in the same manner as the way I've lived my life. How do people do that, Michael? So I, I think one way of uh, thinking about this 
is that dying isn't just a clinical issue, but because we're so scientific and so clinical today that I would argue dying is mostly a moral issue. Mm. And, and so when you're getting advice from your doctor, you're getting clinical advice. You're not getting moral advice. You're not getting philosophy advice. And when you're making choices about your own life and the end of your own life, those are choices that are philosophical, ethical, and moral. They are clinical. And, and so as a way of, uh, you could almost remind your physician of that because your physician is just going to talk to you from that clinical point of view. They aren't going to talk to you from that uh, moral point of view because they don't know what your morals are. They don't know, they're not that comfortable with who you are. And that's why it's so important to have uh, explicit, well-drafted and current advanced directives. So one good question to ask your doctor is, do you have my advanced directive in my chart? Have you reviewed my advanced directive? Now, um, honestly, they aren't paid to put it in the chart. They're not paid to read it. So and they're not paid they, to listen to you. And they're not paid to and listen to you. And talk with you. <laughs> so these are, these are real, pro I mean, these are burdens on doctors. I mean, these are terrible burdens on doctors. And then ironically, we create this specialty called palliative care that's supposed to do this, and then we don't pay for it. And it's sort of like, well, you don't have them because you don't pay for it. I mean, so it becomes more your own responsibility to know what you want. And then, go back to that, Michael. Go back to that about not paying for it because I think that is a really big issue. There are things that they'll pay for and things that they won't pay for when they, you're dealing with they, your end they, of life. You know, and, and I, I, you know, they is Medicare. They are the insurance companies. It is the rules of the insurance company. <clears throat> I have three chapters in the book going painfully through that game that goes on particularly with private insurance for uh, they say it's medically unnecessary that whole concept is ridiculous and and we spend more money on uh forcing doctors to to prove necessity to somebody that doesn't know what the doctor is really wanting that that whole mechanical process is a waste of money for society and coding is how healthcare works today Healthcare is driven by coding. And you can't get a service without it being coded. And it will have multiple codes. And the problem with coding is that it only wants to code something that it can measure. Well, conversations, reading, these things are not codable. And so doctors' incomes are, are you know, put under tremendous pressure. I mean, it, it's a gift to you whenever they're talking to you. I mean, they're, they're really taking that away from making an income. And, and so um, I think that that is one of the big recommendations in my book to change coding for all of primary care and palliative care. Um, you know, another interesting issue is we've never had, we have, we're gonna have 78 million Americans over 65 in 2030, 78 million, a 60% increase 
in the next seven years. You would think that we would have a phenomenal number of geriatricians in this country. There are almost no geriatricians. And geriatrics was created before pediatrics. And the reason it doesn't exist is because of COVID, because they will only have Medicare patients because they're only going to have older patients. And, and the coding in Medicare doesn't pay for these conversations. So you could not make a living as a geriatrician. That is just evidence of how dysfunctional this payment model is. And I offer very explicit, pragmatic solutions to this problem in my book. Michael, why did you write the book? I mean, you've I, talked a little bit about it, but why did you why did you write this book? What were you hoping the outcome would be the accomplishment of the book? I would say that there are uh, the first reason um, is that I felt that I spent my whole career trying to make healthcare work better. And I feel I didn't have any progress in spite of all kinds of efforts. And as I started, so I moved into looking at ethics as, a, as a, an area of focus. And what I discovered is that this end of life care is maybe the secret to reforming all of healthcare. If we can return to a doctor-patient relationship where they have time to talk with you, we would have a much better health system. And so I offer a way to make that possible uh, and save money. I also, you know, it's interesting, one of the ways that entrepreneurship has addressed this problem is concierge medicine. So with concierge medicine, you have a physician that uh, the normal panel a primary care practice has is 2,500 patients. In a concierge practice, it's 600 patients or less. How do they make up for the difference? You as a patient write them a check for $3,000 a year. And then they have time to talk to you. And, and so, but the interesting thing is that the patients that are going to the concierge doctors have one third fewer ER visits, one third fewer hospitalizations. And so we're saving money for all the money you're spending uh, for a concierge doctor. We could do that for everybody. We could. It would be great for Medicaid patients. Medicaid patients can't get to a primary care doctor because the pay is so bad. And they end up using the emergency room as their primary care doctor. Talk about an expensive place to go for primary care. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and so these are the things I talk about in the book that illustrate that it is possible to change these things. And so my motivation was to change healthcare. And I always had a passion for hospice and end of life care. And I could never understand why people weren't, um, th there has been a lot of research on uh, how to change end of life care. There's a, a huge uh, report that came out in 2015 called Death and Dying in America from the Institute of Medicine, 651 pages. 
nothing in that report has been adopted. And the work from that helped create palliative care, for example. But we don't, it's like hospice and palliative care is disconnected from healthcare. And it's disconnected because of insurance. It's not viewed as medically necessary. That's why they won't even let you have Medicare insurance and hospice simultaneously. And my argument is, it is very medically necessary. I mean, talking to your doctor is medically necessary. I actually discovered what I think is a pretty good solution, and it's in the book. My guest today is Michael Doreen Codley. He is the author of a fabulous book, The Journey's End. It's, um, it's a great way to learn more about some of the choices you have. And I guess I want to say to my listeners that there are always choices. You always have the opportunity to make choices if you can get someone to lay out the choices for you. And that, I think, is the really hard part. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is Michael Doreen Conley. He has written an absolutely great book, The Journey's End. I do suggest it. It's a wonderful read, but I also suggest that you go to um, www.ellenbecker.com. You scroll down to radio shows. You hit on Money Sense and Michael's, um, our show today will be there. It's a great way if you don't know how to start a conversation as to how to start a conversation with the people who matter the most to you. And it is it is a, a, a pretty tough conversation. And I think one of the things that I asked Michael to talk about during the break was how do we prepare ourselves for if we have are blessed enough to have the ability to make choices and to hear a prognosis and some of the choices we have. But, you know, I also, we have yeah. to remember that sometimes we don't have that. Sometimes there's an end of our life that comes much quicker than we think. Um, and we aren't there to make those choices and our children are there or the family members to make some of those choices. But how do we come to that place of acceptance that, we are going to die because a lot of times they'll say, do you have a will, you know, if you die? And it's not if you die, it's when you die. I mean, it's going to so, happen. <laughs> so I think that um, a main issue is educating yourself about your fear. And so what, what really happens is that there's an amazing uh, research done by a, a doctor, um, Angelos at Harvard on uh, the power of videos to educate people about treatments. And uh, he did a lot of research on this. And what he showed was that before they saw, the, he would you know, advise them what various treatments looked like, whether it was a feeding tube or uh, ICU or whatever. And so what he did was in the beginning, he started taking his patients up to ICU and showing them what it looks like. <laughs> they, they go, well, I don't want that. And so, uh, but then he got in trouble with the hospital because he was violating some HIPAA regulations by doing <laughs> this. 
So he was very creative and he created videos. And he created a video on each sort of uh, treatment. And what he found, then he showed, he talked to the patient about what they wanted before the video. And before the video, 90% of people wanted treatment. And after the video, 10% of people wanted treatment. A complete reversal. And that's the power of education. And, and so what I'm really trying to encourage people is to become informed. This is not just a task to check off a form. It is a burden for your family not to know what you want because they're gonna be afraid. They're gonna be full of emotion about losing you. And they're just gonna say, do everything. I mean, it, it's just, it's very hard not to. I mean, as informed as I am, when my mother threw an embolism in, um, after a surgery, and she was, I had just left her and thought she was just fine and flew back to California. And then I get to California and they call me and say, she threw an embolism and she's in a permanent vegetative state. And we need to, she's in ICU, but we need to, we think it's, you know, the most humane thing, which today they probably wouldn't say that. But, and I thought about it and I go, I know that's what she'd want. That's exactly what she'd want. But I want to, I want to see her. I, I want to be there when she dies. I'm in California. She's in Milwaukee. I want to be there. I, I had to have my head override my heart to say, let her go. Because there was nothing for me to really see when I came. She was gone already. But that is so hard when you do think about these issues. And then again, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier of the advice you're going to get from the health system is going to be clinical. Dying is moral. And, and so uh, it's important for you to philosophically and morally think about these issues and how you want to approach death. Thank you for sharing that story. I think that so many people, if they haven't been in that position, will someday be in that position to have to make that call to, you know, override their head and listen to their heart. And I always like to say to myself, um, live by what you trust, not by what you fear, you know, trust that decision. Right. And that's that's really important. The show has gone way too fast. My guest today is Michael Conley, uh, Michael Doring Conley. And as I said, he has served as CEO and has been in the healthcare business for a very long time. He has written um, the book, The Journey's End. It's great. Share it with your kids. And thank you, Michael, for being my guest today. And as always, I hope I've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Have a great weekend. Thank you.